Let me just begin by saying good morning again and welcome. I want to welcome especially now those of you who are joining us by video in our contemporary worship venue, online, on TV. I'm glad you're here, that we have this chance to be connected together, to learn and grow together, to grow together as followers in the way of Jesus. We are continuing with a series. We're in the fourth week of a series that we use to kick off this fall season. It's called The Best Kept Secret. And I know that some of you are getting in the spirit of this series because just this morning, before worship, one of you dropped off a novel in my mailbox called Best Kept Secret. See that right there? I've never read this, so if this is completely inappropriate to hold up in church, I didn't know about it. I apologize. We're in a series called The Best Kept Secret. We are talking about the ways that we now mostly take for granted, all the ways that Jesus has revolutionized our world, but we hardly know that it was him who did it anymore. In the first couple weeks of the series, we were talking about the way that Jesus taught us about human value, the dignity of every individual human being, established what we now think of as human rights. We talked about how Jesus impacted our practices of love and compassion. Last week about Jesus beginning a revolution in gender equality, seeing women and men as equals together. After all those big things, today I thought maybe we'd try something hard, right? (laughs) Today I want to talk to you about the influence of Jesus on politics and government. Yeah, I thought that was going to happen. (laughs) Anybody a little nervous about that? Talking about politics and church with me right there on that? Because oftentimes when that has happened, it has not gone very well, right? As people say, sometimes it generates more heat than light. We're not very good at talking about politics and faith together. If there's anything we're worse at than talking about it, it might be doing it. Sometimes we're not very good at living out the practice of how how do we live our faith in the public world? How do we do that? There are mistakes that we make. There are very common, if you will, ditches that we fall into. Not not just Christians, religious people of all kinds. Kind of over on this end of the spectrum, there's a ditch on this side of the road over here where people, sometimes religious people of all faiths, have tried to enforce or legislate their faith with the power of the state, with governmental power. There are people around the world right now who would look at some of the Islamic movements or Islamic states that are arising and see danger there and say, boy, that seems like a problem. But I don't want to just point the finger at other people. You can read Christian history and see that people in the name of Jesus have stumbled badly in similar ways. Coincidentally, I happen to be reading a novel, a piece of historical fiction right now. It draws on, in some places, the periods of Christian persecution of Jews by state power, church and state power, especially in the Middle Ages, pogroms in Europe, Spanish Inquisition, turns my stomach. It's terrible stuff that's been done in the name of Jesus by the power of the state. When you mix those things together, stuff, dangers can get nasty really fast. And for Christians anyway, this side of this ditch on this side of the road is never really gonna work out for us. We follow the one, we follow Jesus, who taught us that what God most wants, that God's great commandment is that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we should love our neighbors as ourselves, and that by this all people would know that we are followers of Jesus, that we love one another. I don't know about you, but I have yet to see the law that can legislate love. How, how, how do you make that happen? Christians are never gonna do very well over here. But, but there's this other ditch over here on, this other, on the other side of the road that honestly I think more Christians fall into more of the time. This might be the more, more numerical danger for us. And that is where we just completely privatize our faith. Right? It's just a matter of internal feelings and private opinions that we should just keep to ourselves. Or maybe it's really just all about the afterlife 
and not about the present life. I heard somebody giving voice to a view like this just in the last couple of weeks. It was a political television commentator, and this person was complaining about the Pope's visit to the United States recently. And the person was very upset that the Pope was offering comment and challenge and meddling in the affairs of things like economic policy or environmental policy, right? And this person said about the Pope that he should just shut up about those things, and this is his message to the Pope. His job is to get souls into heaven. That's it. His job is to get souls into heaven. Shouldn't be talking about how we treat the poor or how nations make war on one another or how we care for the creation that God made. Now, I'm not that concerned with your particular opinion about the Pope or what news channels you watch, but I recognize that that opinion, I recognize that that opinion sounds a lot like what misguided Christians were telling to African slaves in our country a couple hundred years ago. Oh, it's not a big deal how you're treated now. It doesn't matter so much that you're abused and exploited. It doesn't matter that you have bread crusts to eat because someday when you die, there will be pie in the sky. You've heard that before, right? That's, where that, that's that cliche, right? And it's come now to stand for empty, meaningless promises. So there's these ditches on both sides of the road where we don't want to enforce faith with the power of the state. We don't want to privatize it or, or um, marginalize it either. We heard Jesus answering a governor, of the, a state official today, and he said to him, my kingdom is not of this world, right? It's not of this world. It's not like the kingdoms of this world. It's not made up of the same stuff as the kingdoms of this world. And yet it is very much in this world that Jesus told people the kingdom of God was at hand and taught those of us who follow him and those who followed him in the past to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What are we supposed to do? How do we find our way between these two ditches? So I, what I want to do today is I want to share with you some stories of Christians who have gone before us. Christians who have gone before us who learned from the lessons of Jesus when they didn't have power, who learned, I think, about a better way between these two ditches, who helped make the world a better, more just, more humane place for all of us to live in, and who I would like to suggest you influenced the best forms of government that the world has attempted since then. And I have, an in, I have an invitation for you as we talk about these things. My invitation to you is talk about this stuff. You know, like in your community groups, perhaps, our study guide this week is written to give you an opportunity to just respond and process this together. Let's learn to talk about these things. And then as the Lord gives you next steps to take, closer to him and his hope and his life for you in the world, walking in his way, take those next steps. But let me begin by looking backward a little bit. I want to begin by talking to you about a historical figure whose name was Constantine. Some of you maybe have heard the name Constantine before. I brought along a picture of Emperor Constantine. You can tell by that picture he lived a long time ago. You can also tell that barbers have learned a few things since then. Some pretty curls he's got going there. That's kind of the Caesar haircut. The Emperor Constantine was the first Christian emperor of the Roman Empire. He lived at the end of the third century and reigned in the beginning of the fourth century of the Roman Empire. Constantine is a complicated historical figure. He's got a lot of good sides. He's got some pretty questionable sides. But he's often misunderstood. One thing that's misunderstood about the Emperor Constantine is that he made Christianity the official state religion of the Roman Empire. It's not actually true, and I want to read to you actually something a little bit later in the message to help you understand what he did instead. 
What he did instead was made Christianity legal for the first time. Until Constantine, Christians were persecuted. Their, their religion was outlawed all around the Roman Empire. He didn't outlaw other religions. He made Christianity legal along with them. And also enacted a number of important reforms early in his reign that will be important for us to learn about. Constantine came to power having learned lessons that the Christian community learned over a couple hundred years before that when they had no power. And I want to talk to you about those lessons today and suggest that I think they could still be very helpful to us in our world. The Christians were learning a lot of things in the experience of persecution. Christians were persecuted, sometimes brutally, especially in the second and third centuries A.D., the Romans regarded the Christians as suspicious and dangerous. They didn't like their values. They didn't like how they worshipped other gods instead of the Roman pantheon, instead of the Roman gods. They thought that was dangerous. So they persecuted the Christians. Sometimes they would come to the home or a worship gathering of suspected Christians or known Christians. And they would demand that the people inside would denounce Jesus, say you're not loyal to Jesus. If you have any scriptures, copies of Matthew or Mark or Luke or John or Paul's letters or the book of Revelation, if you have any of that stuff, you got to hand them over or trample on them. You should come to the pagan temple and make sacrifices and worship to the gods of Rome. And if you know the names of any of your Christian co-conspirators, and of course you do, you better fess up. And the people who didn't received violent punishments. They were jailed, they were killed, sometimes by burning at the stake, dismemberment. They were made to be spectacles in the gladiator games, run over by chariots, fed to wild animals. They were persecuted brutally. This still happens to Christians around the world today. What's remarkable about the Christians in that time and still today is how you never read stories of the Christians taking up arms in some sort of revolt trying to defeat by power, trying to fight fire with fire against their persecutors. And it's not that they couldn't have done, have done that at all. Other similar people groups have done that from time to time, whether with good prospects or not. But they were followers of Jesus. They read the stories of Jesus' life. They followed the spirit of Jesus in their lives. Jesus was the one who had said to them about future persecutors, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And they took that to heart. And they knew the story of Jesus when the Roman guards were coming for him. And his follower Peter somehow had a sword and took the sword out and began swinging it to defend Jesus. And Jesus said, Peter, put away your sword. Right? Those who live by the sword die by the sword. And Jesus allowed himself to be captured by these Roman guards. We read stories of what came of that just this morning in our worship services. The early Christians were learning that it is really dangerous to enforce religion with the power of the state. They were on the wrong end of that. They were on the receiving end of that. And when they came to power, at least for a while, at least in some places, they remembered that lesson. They were learning, if you will, something about the separation of church and state. Nobody in the third century wrote that phrase. As far as I know, that was coined by Thomas Jefferson in a letter he wrote in 1802 as part of what we call the American experiment. But those ideas were being learned by the Christians already 1,500 years earlier. They learned about loving their enemies, praying for their persecutors, the separation of church and state. I would say that in contexts like this, they also learned about something that we now call limited government, something we continue to value in our day and age and our part of the world. They learned this from a controversial moment in Jesus' life. Some people came to Jesus once and they wanted to trap him. People were often asking Jesus trick questions. His opponents were trying to trip him up. 
And they came to him and asked him, is it legal? Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Rome? Well, now this is a trick question. The Jews hated paying taxes to Rome, which is not odd. Nobody likes paying taxes, right? But they hated it more than most people because on the coin they had to pay it with was an image of the Roman Caesar and the name of the Caesar. And they interpreted the Ten Commandments to say, you shall have no graven images like this. It's blasphemous even to carry the coin, let alone use it. So if he said, you can't pay your taxes, if he said, you should pay your taxes, the Jews would hate him. If he said, you can't pay your taxes, the Roman police would arrest him. He was stuck. I brought along a picture of the coin to show you. I think we've got a picture of that coin up here. There it is. That's an image of of the Roman Caesar, Roman king, right there on the front, and some Roman symbols of victory on the back. So what was he supposed to say about that? Well, it's interesting. Jesus asks, hey, does someone have one of those coins? Could you show me? me? Let's see one of those coins. It's a detail in the story, but it's interesting to me that Jesus wasn't carrying one himself. He asked someone for one of these coins, and they brought it to him, and he said, so whose picture's on there? Whose image is that? Whose inscription is on that coin? Like, well, it's Caesar's. It's the king's image. And then Jesus said this famous phrase that has lived even among people who don't know the Bible. Render unto Caesar. Give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Give to God that which is God's. That sounds kind of familiar, cliche to us. But Jesus was introducing a new idea into the world. There are things that are not Caesar's. There are things that don't belong to the power of the throne, that don't belong to the power of the government. And one of them is religious freedom. One of them is how we honor God. And when the power of the state runs the power of the church for the sake of the state, you've got a big problem. And that was the case in the Roman world. You you, you never could have used the phrase state church in the Roman world. It wouldn't make no sense because it was the same thing. It's like saying governmental governor or something. They, they were the same. Now, Caesar Augustus, who lived right at the beginning of Jesus' lifetime, right at the, as, as Jesus was being born, he was not only the king of the Roman Empire, he was the high priest of the Roman state, of the Roman cult. They were the same thing. When the king used religion to legitimate the empire, it was violently dangerous for everybody else. Now, I should say, to clarify a point, that actually Jesus' own people, the Jewish people, had already realized hundreds of years before that when the will of the king conflicted with the will of God, you should obey God instead. They learned this in exile under pagan kings. But until Jesus, the answer had always been to replace the pagan state with the state you would make in your own image. But Jesus saw this differently. My kingdom is not of this world. In fact, one time, the people, after Jesus performed a great miracle that seemed to be a sign of him being God's Lord for the world, they wanted to seize him and make him king, and he refused. This is what it says as an example of that in John chapter 6. After he did a great feeding miracle, fed the 5,000, it says in John 6 verse 14, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself because his kingdom was not of this world. The Christians were learning about the separation of church and state, about loving their enemies, about limited government. They also learned something about the purpose of leadership. They learned something about the purpose of leadership. In in a lot of ancient societies, kings ruled by something called divine right. God gave them the right to rule, and those who were ruled lived for the sake of those who ruled them. The governed existed for the sake of the governing, right? But the church developed a different leadership structure parallel to the state while it had no social power at all. And they developed what we would now call the concept of servant leadership. 
that the leaders were there to serve the people, not the people to serve the leaders. One of the chief examples of that was the, the priests, the clergy in the early church. The, one of the things they administrated was the collection of tithes and offerings to care for the poor, to do good in their community. Remember, in the ancient Roman Empire, they didn't really have much of a welfare system. It wasn't working very well at all. It was the church that cared for the poor. And so you had the, the clergy of the church helping to lead these efforts. So, so what you had, you might catch the phrase here, is you had the leadership of the people by other common people for the good of the people. We've used that phrase. It was Abraham Lincoln who coined that expression in the Gettysburg Address 150 or so years ago. Government of the people, by the people, for the people. Now the Christians weren't saying those words, but you can see how that idea was already germinating 1,500 years earlier in the experience of the Christians. They learned humility and leadership, servant leadership for the sake of the people. The Christian community also realized that they needed to offer a better alternative moral vision than the one they were living in the midst of in the empire. Something that was more humanizing, that gave more hope to people. So one of the chief examples of this is the way the Christians responded to the gladiator games in the Roman Empire. This is the, the blood sport and the violence of watching other people suffer for our entertainment. When I was thinking about that concept before today, I thought, gosh, that feels like reality TV to me. I'm not sure. Hopefully people aren't actually dying most of the time, but... The Christians thought it wasn't a good thing to watch other people suffer for our entertainment, and so they wouldn't go to the gladiator games anymore. I think the same thing happens to us. I already just mentioned our media entertainment, but I know a lot of times I talk to Christians whose hearts are being resensitized to the violence in the media that we watch. I, I used to really love movies that were pretty violent, and I think that thing that happens in your heart and in my heart as Jesus resensitizes our hearts to that kind of stuff, that's the rehumanization of our hearts to what we've become desensitized to. Well, they also offered Rome. They, they objected to the sexual immorality t in the Roman Empire, to the exploitation of children, to the state-sponsored executions that people watched and enjoyed in ancient Rome. And these were the things that were happening in the Christian community up until the time that Emperor Constantine became the first Christian emperor in Rome. And as part of his reign, he enacted some of these things. He helped some of these things come to be. He stopped the crucifixion of criminals. He put an end to the gladiator games. Part of Constantine's legacy is that he made Sunday an official day of rest across the empire. He enacted, I think, the world's first blue laws, other than Sabbath keeping in the, among Jews for thousands of years before. In fact, Constantine's establishment of Sunday as a day of rest for the working class in Rome, establishing a weekend for the working class, drew on the principles of the Old Testament Sabbath, which was never meant to be an opportunity for the privileged to put their feet up and be served by other people, but it was always meant to be a day of compassion and justice for everyone together. But probably the most famous thing, the most famous good thing that Constantine did, came in his issuing of the Edict of Milan. It's a famous document announced, written in A.D. 313. This is the document that made Christianity legal in the Roman Empire. And I want to read you a few lines of it here this morning. It, don't be confused. I'm opening my Bible because I taped it in the back. This is not in the Bible. All right, this is the, this is the Edict of Milan. There are a few lines of it. Therefore, we decided it would be a beneficial course of action and one highly consistent with right reason that no one should be denied the freedom to join himself to the rights of the Christians. You're allowed to do that. Or to whatever other religion his mind directed him. The open and free exercise of their respective religions is granted to all others 
as well as to the Christians. For it is fitting for the well-ordered state and the tranquility of our times that each individual be allowed, according to his own choice, to worship the divinity. And we mean not to detract anything from the honor due to any religion or its devotees. What an interesting thing to be reading from the year A.D. 313. You can see how even modern notions of religious tolerance were being practiced and promoted by Christian leaders 1,700 years ago. But the idea of religious tolerance isn't to be confused with the idea that every truth is true or every truth claim is true. And listen to a few more lines. But therefore, let those who still delight in error, right? We believe that Jesus offers us life and you're following a way that doesn't give you life. But if you delight in error, therefore let them be made welcome to the same degree of peace and tranquility which believers have. For it may be that this restoration of equal privileges to all will prevail to lead them into the straight path. That's an interesting way to think that Christianity began to give to the world. Isn't it interesting to think about it this way? Jesus, through his followers, inspired a form of government in which people would be free to reject Jesus. Jesus, through his followers, established a form of government or inspired a form of government in which people would have every freedom and safety to reject Jesus. Which sounds a little crazy the first time you think about it. Maybe crazy like Jesus, though. If you're not free to reject Jesus, how could you ever be free, really, to receive him? And it is in receiving Jesus that life comes to us and to the world. It is in receiving the grace of Jesus in our brokenness that we realize there is hope for us. It is in receiving the power of the living Lord of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, that we recognize there is hope for the transformation of our lives and for the resurrection of our lives unto eternal life forever and ever. And for the first few weeks of the series, we've been talking about how Jesus sees us, how he grants us dignity, how he establishes our infinite value in the eyes of God and teaches us to confer dignity on one another how it is that Jesus shows us that we are loved by God and teaches us practices of love and compassion for one another, how Jesus establishes our equality in the eyes of God. And it is in receiving the hope of Jesus Christ for us that we are transformed from the inside out now and forever and made to be the kind of people who can be salt and light for the rest of the world. And that's the next invitation that comes to us, to receive Jesus for the transformation and hope in our own lives And then to be able to walk out followership to Jesus in this world. I think the next step for us is to begin to figure out together, in this church community, together with other churches and other places, how is it that we walk this out now in our world? Because I don't have all the answers. I don't know the right ways to do this. There are some things that I think we can all know pretty clearly. Jesus wants us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. He doesn't want us to become violent and persecuting toward others. Jesus cares that we show care and compassion toward the poor. Jesus cares that we would ourselves shine the light of a more hopeful and more humane moral vision for the world. But I don't know all the right policies to make that happen. I don't think any one of you does either. But together as we reason and pray and think together about how it is that we can in our shared life demonstrate the ways of Jesus in the world and hopefully begin to take steps that make the world a better place. Just imagine that. Imagine a growing community of Christians doing exactly that. And, and, and I know as I say that that we haven't always done very well at this. 
Sometimes the church has been lousy at this. I've only told one part of Constantine's story today. He's an ambiguous figure. He wasn't perfect. The so-called Christian emperors who followed after Constantine were worse. The so-called Christian governments that have been established in many places around the world since then have been terrible at this sometimes. But the world needs the church of Jesus Christ to be faithful to its calling. The world needs the light that shines in us to enlighten the world. The world needs Christians to live into the ideals of Jesus. The world needs the hope of Jesus Christ that we know. That's part of our, that's a big part of our vision for life together as a church. It's why we have a vision to continue to grow as a church. It's why we have a vision to expand even the building of our church, to allow us to continue to grow and continue to be a bigger blessing in our world. Because we want to shine the light of God in Jesus Christ so that all may know. So that everyone who's living without the hope of God in Jesus Christ would come to know the hope and transforming power of God in Jesus Christ. Some of you have read that the plans we've had for expanding our facility, we were going to launch that this fall, and we've pushed that back a little bit. It's really just to allow more time to pray and plan for that so that we do that well, do that wisely. I think it matters that much. And imagine when that happens. Imagine not just the building, but imagine as churches grow in the way of Christ. Imagine a community of Christians who are known, who develop a reputation for loving their neighbors, for having compassion toward those who have been discarded, for conferring dignity upon those from whom the world has taken their dignity. A church who's known for welcoming the stranger, a church who's known for our own lives being transformed by the grace and power of God in Jesus Christ. That's the kind of thing I pray for. It's the kind of thing we pray together for as a church. Let's pray together for it right now. Lord Jesus, you are the world's one true Lord. You're the king of heaven and earth. And we confess our faith in you. Lord, if, if we've been wandering from you, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts and bring us back to you. Where we ourselves have been in rebellion against you, where we have wandered, we bring that back to you and ask for your forgiveness. And ask that you would lead us, that you would strengthen us to walk in your way. And God, I pray for the faithfulness and fruitfulness for the witness of your church around the world. God, lead us in the ways of Jesus. Teach us to live together in his hope and his love and his grace and his compassion. And Lord, I pray that you would make your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We live and pray in Jesus' name.